Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much, David. Um, also, I'd like to say a massive happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. We are so grateful for you and so thankful for all that you've done in our lives and in the lives of the people you've touched. So, as David said, my name is Mika Hurd. I am, yes, part of this church and I love this church. They are amazing. If you have not met me, I would love to meet you and have a coffee with you downstairs in the cafe after the service. Currently, we are in a series called Encountering Jesus, as you can read on the screen behind me, where we are looking at everyday, ordinary people and how they encounter Jesus, what they bring to that encounter and how they leave from that encounter. A few weeks ago, David gave us a message about how the sheepish rabbi came to Jesus uh, in the night and he stripped him back and accepted him for who he was. And last week, Scott gave us a message about the blind man and how he was healed and how that healing was not to be, that miracle was not to be worshipped, but that miracle points to God. How beautiful is that? So this week, we'll be jumping into Luke 22, where we will be walking through what it looks like to stand in true Christian greatness and what true Christian greatness even is. Will you read with me in Luke 22, verses 24 to 30? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's a lot of scripture. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for what you're doing here, God. I pray that this, this message is not of me, God, but it's of you, that each and every one of us walks away more in love with you and, and, and has a deeper desire to want more of you and to walk in the ways of you. Lord God, help me, lead me, and guide me. God, I pray for soft hearts as we receive this message, Lord God, and I just pray for so much more of you and so much less of me. In your mighty name, amen. Who likes seafood? I definitely do. And Google seems to think that 50% of the world's population also likes seafood. That is over 4 billion people who actually consume 154 million tons of seafood every year. It is a lot of seafood. In 2021, the global seafood market reached the value of 253 billion US dollars. That means they are making $29 million an hour. That's, that's a lot of money and a lot of seafood. Do we think that they are pretty successful? I think so too. But at what point does the success of that industry actually begin to cost more than it's worth? People strive for greatness and will stop at absolutely nothing uh, yeah, to get there and achieve it. But is that actually what we should be doing? Take tuna, for example. My husband absolutely despises it. I'm not allowed to eat it in the house because it stinks too much. (laughs) 
who's with him. Yeah, exactly. But for every delicious, stinky tuna that's caught, one Nemo is also caught. And that Nemo is then left dead, dying or injured, and thrown back into the ocean. All for what? The success of the fishing industry? Is it really worth it? Okay, so they're not all Nemos. There's also 300,000 whales and dolphins killed every year. There's 30,000 sharks killed every hour. And there's over 250,000 sea turtles that are killed in the USA alone. Guys, this is a lot of havoc that's caused by the fishing industry. And I'll ask again, at what point does that greatness actually outweigh the cost that it's worth? Are we all put off seafood for a week? <laughs> I definitely was after writing this sermon. But this is not a stab at the fishing industry or anyone who loves seafood as much as I do. But it does highlight something about our broken, corrupt human nature. And, and it's, it points to how what we will do in order to achieve this greatness. All for what? The, to achieve greatness? Is it really worth hurting so many people? This fractured understanding is not only something as we as 21st century Christians struggle with, but it's also something that the disciples have struggled with. We see them fighting for a position of greatness all throughout the Gospels. In Matthew 20, they argue about who will sit at the left and the right hand of Jesus. In Mark 9, they argue again about who is the best position of greatness. We also see them argue early in Luke 9, where they, they saw themselves as more elite than everyone else because they walked beside Jesus. But that wasn't enough. They still argued who was the greatest among the twelve. As if the 12 is not enough. But we see them rivaling for success again here in Luke 22, where it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. I'm going to go on a side tangent. Who has been in the backseat of the car arguing with their sibling about something dumb? <laughs> and maybe that argument is like, You pinch me. No, you pinch me first. Something stupid and you're trying really hard not to get the parents involved because as soon as you do, you know you are in big trouble. And uh, when that happens, they're going to scream at you. Or worse, dad's going to pull the car over. And maybe you're the kid in the room and you know exactly what that feels like. You know you are guilty of pinching the first pinch, of provoking that argument, and you know what's coming. Or you're the parent in the room and you're like, yes. These arguments are so silly, they're so petty, they're so annoying, and you felt the full extent of wanting to leave your kid on the highway and just keep driving. Amen. Yeah, <laughs> but Jesus probably felt something similar to this with the disciples. He's been hearing the same argument for years, and, and he's probably shaking his head and being like, guys, you have it so wrong. Have you not been looking at how I've been leading, how I've been teaching, how I've been serving my entire ministry? He's been demonstrating servanthood and true greatness. He's been illustrating that kingdom people should not live by worldly principles. Jesus rebukes his disciples, not by leaving them on the highway, but with patience, with kindness, and, and, and with this, this love that, that lets them come to the conclusion that actually the greatness they're striving for is just not worth it. The disciples have only had one perspective of greatness. This perspective was 
by a king who ruled and, and, and exerted dominance and authority. They lived in a patriarchal system where the father was the absolute authority over the family group. They, they were led by Jewish religious rulers who, who forbade the teaching of Jesus' name. We, we, we take this for granted, sitting in our incredible church, hearing Scott's phenomenal sermons, having coffee, worshipping together. This just is not a reality for the disciples. They also suffered from Roman persecution later on under the rule of Nero, who would persecute anyone in the, that calls upon the name of Jesus. Church, that's you and I. This persecution consisted of imprisonment that led to death, as we see in Acts 22. It says, I, this is Paul, persecuted the followers of this way, that is the way of Christ. Paul persecuted them to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. In Acts 7, we see that this persecution wasn't only happening in their time, but it had been happening all throughout history. So the disciples were not shy to this persecution. They, they knew exactly what domineering leadership looked like and felt like. Their whole understanding was shaped and molded by, by the people around them, by the society they lived in. And this is just like us. We cannot point the finger at the disciples. As we've just experienced with the fishing industry, our understanding of greatness seems just as broken as theirs. When Jesus responds to the disciples, he responds to their position of greatness and highlights that this is a fractured understanding of greatness. As we read in verse 25, Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. The disciples' perspective of leadership and greatness was that of power, position, and authority. Is their perspective of greatness any different to ours today? Let me tell you a story. When I was in high school, before I was a Christian, to be the greatest was to hang out with the most popular kids. And to do that, you wanted to, to hang out with the cool kids and be one of the cool kids. But in order to do that, I had to trample on good, genuine friendships. Because I was more concerned about my position, my greatness, the oh-so-important high school status, rather than the people I hurt, the feelings I left behind, those that I, that I stood on and crushed. I th I w can we think of examples in our lives where we have acted out of a desire for a position of greatness, a desire to be better than all of the people around us? I certainly have. We land in order to gain. We trample on others in order to receive power. We throw our peers under the bus to receive that greater position. Our, in our culture, companies such as Apple, Netflix, and the fishing industry are the epitome of success because they have the most power, they have the most money, and they are in the best position. But let me ask you, do you think Jesus would hold these companies in as such high regard as we do? I don't think so. I think that our broken understanding is so similar to that of the disciples. I guess an extra 2,000 years really didn't enlighten us very much. Many of our bosses, our managers, our leaders around us, they, they abuse their position of power. They, they are domineering and, and they lord it over those underneath them, just as benefactors do. Jesus explains benefactors as people who, who land in order to receive who will give in order to gain. Take, think about all the, the banks. They're the best 21st century example of major benefactors. Or think of that, that friend you have, that one time you forgot your wallet and they paid for your coffee, 
and now they bring it up every time you see them, and they just want to remind you that you owe them $3.50? Do you know people who will lend in order to gain? I think I definitely do. But God, Jesus calls us, you are not to be like that. Church, that's us. That's me. That's Scott. That's Lauren. That's all of us in this room. We are not to be like that. Jesus' way is vastly different to our understanding of leadership. He calls us to a lowly, humble form of leadership that builds up, that serves others, that gives and puts others before ourselves. Church, we should stand out like a pimple on date night. We should... (laughs) They are the worst. Tell me. (laughs) We should stand out in stark contrast to the broken world around us. In a world of corruption, of misdirected authority... We are called to be different to our society. As Max Licato says, a man who wants to lead the orchestra must turn his back on the crowd. For the conductor to lead an orchestra, he must not strive for his own success, but rather the success of the combined orchestra. He should strive to, to please, to, um, sorry, to grant others success, to build others up. He should not please the crowd because they're not going to make a beautiful melody, but he should strive for the greatness of the combined orchestra. As Christian leaders, we need to use our conducting power to serve, to build up, rather than trample and destroy. As Jesus says in verse 26, But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Jesus' definition of greatness is so different to ours. He's trying to rearrange our priorities and the disciples' priorities and ways of thinking. In, those in authority should not be the ones who just point the finger and tell you what to do. Rather, they should be the ones who lead the way and serve. As John Maxwell says, a leader who is one, a leader is one who knows the way, who goes the way, and who shows the way. Leaders are those who should serve in order to see others succeed. They are people who build others up, who will encourage them to a more beautiful, better way of living. They they should help others do better and greater things than they could ever imagine for themselves. Christian leaders should put others before themselves, just like the youngest child did back in the day of Jesus. In our culture, the youngest child is the favorite Spoiled rotten is the golden child, and we all want to be that child. Don't you agree? All the youngest are shaking their head. (laughs) However, to the disciples, age gave privileges. The youngest was by definition the lowest in the family structure. And this this is why the disciples must have had such a blank look on their face when Jesus responds with this. So he goes on to explain with an analogy. For who is greater? The one at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is illustrating that there's a contrast between our way and between his way. And and that we should not live the way that we are. There's a photo that's going to come up. And actually, yeah. And we should like, take this photo for example. Who do you think is the greatest? The king, the one at the head of the table, or those being served the delicious food? Our world would say so, but Jesus doesn't. He says it's those who are serving, those in the background, 
giving and serving and feeding the others, who are putting the others before themselves. We see in Philippians 2 that Jesus, the king of the feast, takes the lowliest position of a servant and, and, and puts us and others before himself. Not looking to your own interest, but the interest of others in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here, Jesus is modeling what true kingdom greatness looks like. We are to put the interests of others before ourselves. We are to have the same mindset of, as Christ and, and serve and love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Jesus, being God himself, did not count that as something to lord over and domineer over. Rather, he used it as something to, to put away and serve others. True kingdom greatness True greatness, true leadership is actually truly sacrificial as we see Jesus died on a cross for us. Jesus, the God of the universe, came to serve, as we read in Matthew 20, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see Jesus displaying this true, true kingdom greatness all throughout the Gospels, but one famous example is in um, John 13, where he washes the disciples' feet. It says, So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Due to the climate and the culture of the day, it was super common for people to wear open sandals or just bare feet. While this prevented sweaty feet, it did make them really dirty. And so washing feet was, was just a daily habit, something that you could not go without. And if you did go without, you were considered uncivilized and you were harshly criticized. Um, it was one of the lowliest positions to take. You, leaders never wash their own feet, let alone the feet of others. And yet, what do we see Jesus do? The king of kings taking on that lowly position and serving the disciples by washing their feet. Can we see the difference between Jesus' way and our way? It's, it's like shiny, bright different. Our world is broken. We are striving for greatness at the cost of Nemo's life and all the other lives. It's just not worth it. Currently, we're live, not living the way Jesus calls us to live. We're not serving and loving the way Jesus shows and demonstrates. We are in desperate need of more of Jesus. I know I definitely am. Our human condition, our pride, our selfishness, our competitiveness keeps getting in the way of us living for Christ. So will we lay our old lives down and put Christ before us? He has shown us a better, a more beautiful way of living. He's redefined greatness as laying one's life down and serving everyone we encounter. I love what John Hague says. The measure of a man's greatness is not the number of servants he has, but the number of people he serves. There should be no limit to the number of people we serve. We should serve all people all around us all of the time. But we should not serve as benefactors do. We should serve generously, giving in abundance to those especially that can never pay us back. But church, I understand this is hard. 
This is really hard. It's a struggle people have been struggling with for thousands of years. It's not going to go away overnight. There are just simply people we struggle with. For example, I was at work the other day. It was really busy. We're like getting absolutely smashed on the coffee machine. And this customer comes in with a really bad attitude. He walks in and rather than ordering the coffee, he more like demands the coffee. And then um, waits no longer than 30 seconds. I'm being dramatic, but no longer than 30 seconds. And then, where's my coffee? And he's coming up to the coffee machine. I'm like, hey, I'm really sorry. You're just going to have to wait. We're getting really busy. There's lots of people have been waiting a lot longer than you. Please just wait. He did not take my advice. He started to get angry. He started to get frustrated and cause a scene. And I was just like, hey, right now in this moment, I felt like throwing the coffee at him, not serving him. <laughs> like, but I was reminded of what Jesus has done for us. He served in, in, in and through difficult situations. He persevered even though there were people who did not want him to be serving them. Maybe you haven't had a bad customer in your day, but you do have that difficult family member, that coworker you just can't deal with anymore, or that friend that just won't shut up about the $3.50. They just make your blood boil. You, just, you don't know how to love them. You don't know how to serve them well. But do you know how? With the help of Jesus. In John 16, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is so beautiful. Jesus says, it's not going to be easy. You're going to face challenges. It's going to be hard, but just give it a go. Persevere through the struggles and, and walk obediently to the call he has called us to walk in. Put Jesus first and serve him. Church, knowing about serving is just not enough. We actually have to step into that. We have to walk in that. We have to practice that. And not only is it hard for us, but it was really hard for Jesus too. The God of the universe, it was hard for him. Jesus came to serve and not to be served. He literally laid his life down for all of humanity, for people who spoke out terribly against him, for people who abused him, who beat him, who mocked him, those who rejected him, he laid his life down for them. He laid his life down for each and every one of us. We see evidence of this hardship in verse 28, where he says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. Jesus admits that he went through trials, and, and he promises the disciples that if you stand with him in those trials, if we walk obediently to serving others, then he goes on. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is referring to the kingdom of God in which he is the mighty king of. Through Jesus, we get to enter into his kingdom, to share at his table, to share in his influence, to be part of his mighty, mighty kingdom. How lucky are we? I'll put this into a worldly perspective. Think about if you wanted to become a citizen of New Zealand, like who wouldn't? It's the best country ever. Um, and you apply online and you're going through that process and then your phone rings and it's the, pres or the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinta, and she's calling you saying, hey, I just saw your application and I want <clears throat> to personally invite you and personally grant that application successful. Not only that, Come and live at my house. Come and stay as long as you want. 
Come and eat at my table. Come and have my food. Come and wear my jumpers because they're a lot warmer than yours in Australia. This is what Jesus is saying to us. Come into his kingdom. Come and have fellowship and relationship with him. Come and eat at his table. Come and be a citizen of heaven because I promise it's far better than a citizen of New Zealand. Who is Jesus inviting into his kingdom? Us. Each and every one of us online, around the world, in this church, just every one of us, we are all invited to take part in God's kingdom. I love what David says in Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him and human beings that you care for them? We don't deserve this beautiful invitation to heaven, church, but this is what true kingdom greatness looks like. Jesus, Jesus found lowly creatures who did not deserve it, and he is going to esteem us. He's going to invite us into his kingdom. We are so lucky. But how do we get this access? How do we get this invitation to God's kingdom? Through the cross of Jesus Christ. He's done all the work. Our sin was stopping us from entering into his kingdom, stopping us from coming and dining with him at his table. And he recognized that. He saw that. And he was like, nah, I'm going to change this. He came down. He left his high position. And he took a lowly position and served us. Church, he took our sin. He took all of the sin of the world and nailed it to the cross. He cast it as far as from the east as to the west. He took our sin away. Just so we could be invited. Just so we can have that dinner with him. Church, he's calling us home. He's calling us to have dinner with him tonight, here today. Anyone, anyone who believes in Jesus, who believes that in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, anyone will receive that invitation. That's all of us. We can all ask God, hey, God, can I come to your house tonight? We don't have to do any work. We don't have to get dressed up. We don't have to do anything. Jesus has done it all. He paid the ultimate price. He came down so that you and I, so that he can personally invite you and I into his kingdom. And you know what the best news is? We're never going to lose that invitation. We're not going to leave it on the kitchen bench and forget about it and then freak out. No, Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit as a seal of that invitation. So guys, how do we live inside of this? By following Jesus' example. In John 13, he says, When he had finished washing the disciples' feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you should wash the feet of others. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Our Lord and teacher has given up his position and taken a position of servanthood. So should we. It doesn't get any clearer than this. We have been called to follow Christ, called to walk in his way and his plan for us. He has called us to a more beautiful way of life, a more beautiful way of serving, a more beautiful way of living. He came down and served humanity by dying a death he did not deserve, by paying a price, paying a debt he did not owe. I love what John Wesley says, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, 
as long as you can. True Christian greatness looks like serving. We should serve all people, the hard ones, our friends, our, our, our worst enemies, and especially we should serve Christ. Walking in servanthood and putting others before ourselves is hard. It's extremely different to what we're used to, but we should persevere. We should follow Christ's example because he came down and suffered trials and death on a cross even when we didn't deserve it. The disciples strove for greatness. What if we as a new life community strive to serve? What would that look like? Would that look so much more beautiful? So I ask, what will you let disciple you? The worldly ways of greatness or the image of Jesus washing your feet? Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for loving us even when we didn't deserve it. God, thank you for all that you've done, God. And I just, I just pray that I'm sorry. I'm sorry for not walking in your ways. I'm sorry for not loving you the way you've called me to love you. I'm sorry for not loving the people around me that I should be loving, Lord. But give me strength through that. Help me and lead me and guide me through that, Lord God. I just pray for more of you, Lord. And if anyone here is, is wanting that invitation to God's kingdom, that is for you. That is for each and every one of us. So I ask, pray this prayer in your hearts with me. Lord God, I'm a sinner and I'm so, so sorry. God, I repent of all that I've done and I turn to you. Lord, thank you for taking my sin. Thank you for making a way for me, Lord God. I just pray that, that we can give out full lives to you. God, I put my trust and my faith in you. And I ask that the Holy Spirit come and fill us. Come and lead us and guide us into a more servant-hearted way of life. In your mighty, heavenly name we pray. Amen.